Good afternoon. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out, we're going to be going through a lot of verses today, and I'm going to go ahead and warn you that I'll be going rather quickly because we have quite a bit of material to cover this afternoon. And so I've put almost all, if not all, of my verses this afternoon up on the board. If you'd like to try and follow along, I encourage you to do that, but maybe you're the type that likes to just jot down notes, and I think that'd be very beneficial for the sermon this afternoon. As we look at a topic that I hinted at this morning, um, even if you don't believe what 2 Timothy 3 says about the Bible being the inspired Word of God, there is little doubt, a little question that the Bible is, not, is, is a very important book or a very influential book. And when we ask the question, how did we get the Bible, that's not a unique question to the Bible. That's a, a question that is asked about lots of pieces of literature in uh, throughout history. When we study pieces such as the, the works of Shakespeare, people would look at, well, what influenced those works? When you study the Constitution, you might look at things like the Magna Carta uh, that reflect how that great document that defines our nation was, was created. So understanding how we got the Bible, understanding how the, these words were transmitted to the people of that day, to, to the book that we have and we can hold in our hands today, that needs to be an important question for each of us to consider and ask. Because so much of our hope rests on the reliability of this text. Now, not too long ago, we looked at the Old Testament formation. And today, we're going to be looking at how, the, how we received the New Testament and how the New Testament was formed. This study focuses us to look at what exists in terms of evidences so that we can refute arguments that have been made that discredit the Scripture. But what I want to suggest after the study this, this afternoon is even though we'll be looking at a lot of evidences that will help us refute these arguments, the, the real value of the Scripture is not an answer to those questions. A real value of the Scripture is what it teaches us about the gospel and the hope that we can have in it. So let's keep that in the back of our mind because we'll come back to that thought at the end of our lesson. But I also hope that this afternoon I can help you to have a greater confidence that the Bible that we read and, and study today is the complete, inerrant, and inspired Word of God. And let's begin with that idea, the idea of inspiration. We talked about this a few months back, the inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3 says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second Peter chapter 1 goes on to say that no prophecy of Scripture is of any in private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now what's interesting about this passage in Second Peter is the word that is used and translated to private interpretation. That word comes from a Greek word which means unraveling. So this is not, what Peter is saying is this is not just the, the surmising and the whittling of men. They, they didn't just sit down and come up with this concept. But rather, Peter, Peter says they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And these are the ways that this inspiration has been described in the past. The nature of it is plenary or full. There is a full inspiration. That suggests that all of the scripture is inspired. But it is also verbally inspired. And that means every word. We can't, we can't open our Bibles and say, well, these words here are inspired, but this word here, I don't like that word. That word is not inspired. No, even every word used in the Scripture is inspired. And it is also dynamically inspired. 
The idea here of, the, of being dynamically inspired is that we can see the personality and we can see the environment in which the individual writer lived, but we can also know the Holy Spirit was in complete control of what was being recorded. Now, we also talked in times past about the, the providence of God's revealing the, the Bible and the message in it at the first stages of written language when they were made available to man. The Old Testament is, is by and large written in Hebrew language, and some of it is written in the Aramaic language. Some phrases, even in the New Testament, are written in the Aramaic as well. This is a result of the Persian conquest, and, and the language of the Persians was this Aramaic language. And so, as they came into the land, it became the language of the Near East people as well. And so, we see in the New Testament that Jesus also spoke Aramaic. Whenever he says in Mark chapter 5, verse 40, 41... Talitha kumai, little girl, rise up. Or in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are, these are Aramaic phrases that he is using. In fact, the words Abba, Rabbani, Mammon, and Cephas are all Aramaic words. But by and large, what the new manuscripts, the New Testament manuscripts that was revealed was written in a, what is the common Greek or Koine Greek. And this is great, due greatly in large part to Alexander the Great. The conquest of Alexander the Great brought the Greek language to much of the ancient world. And so the Old Testament was translated into Koine Greek. And we see that in the form of the Septuagint. Now this is the book that, that Old Testament and even New Testament Christians, uh, they would have had a copies of, of, the, of the Septuagint. They would have been able to study and read the Old Testament in this Greek translation. And so it's even quoted sometimes in the Greek New Testament. We also talked about the materials that are used in this revelation. Uh, God chose at a time to reveal His Word when they were to be written down on scrolls. And so we talked about scrolls made of papyrus, which was plants that were crushed and glued together, or animal skins, parchments, where they would scrape the skin and then they would, they would uh, turn it into a leather and then write on that. So we talked about that when we talked about the discussion of the formation of the Old Testament. But near the end of the New Testament period, there was a new development in this technology, and that was the Codex, or what we might call today a book. This came about near the end of the first century. What it was was still papyrus or parchment, but they were bound together now instead of being rolled up. And they had writing on both sides. Some scholars suggest that the development of the Codex was because of the drive by Christians to have and to teach the gospel. Their, their, their focus on, on evangelizing and helping other people to see God and His revealed Word led them to... to, to Change the technology of the day in which ideas were transmitted. And these are the tools God used to record and preserve the fulfillment of a very, very old promise. And that is the promise of the coming of the Messiah. You see, God revealed Himself to the Jews and He gave them a law. But He also gave them a promise that one would come and that they should hear. And He would be God with them. And He would be the Messiah, the Anointed One. We read about that in Deuteronomy 18. Verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Two important things that we need to remember from this passage were the fact that it would be a virgin birth that, gave, that, that brought in 
the, the Messiah, and that his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and, re- and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What is significant about the New Testament, what is significant about this, these, these books that we're studying this afternoon, is that it bears record that Jesus of Nazareth, born of the tribe of Judah, born a descendant of, of David, born in the place prophetically indicated in which the Messiah would come, Jesus came forth there of a virgin. And it's very important and there's some things I want to see about that idea. Jesus came forth as the promised Messiah and he claimed to be the promised Messiah. In John chapter 4, it says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He asserted that he was a Messiah. This is recorded for us in the Gospels. The Gospels also record other claims that, that he was the Messiah. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 17, Jesus asked the question, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus claimed himself to be this Messiah. And Jesus also accepted other people's claims that said he is the Messiah. But Jesus also fulfilled prophecy that point to to the coming of the Messiah. And the level of which he he fulfilled these prophecies is mind-bending. Uh, it has been said there, there is over 300 prophecies that in Jesus' life he fulfilled pointing to him being the Messiah. And statistically, the, the odds of one man coming and doing this are the same as if you were to cover the state of Texas in quarters up to two feet deep, turn a blind man loose in the state and say one quarter in this pile of quarters, the state, state of Texas wide has a red X on it you have one chance to find it. The odds of that happening on the first try are the odds of Jesus fulfilling all 300 of these prophecies. Oh, excuse me, 60 of these prophecies. He fulfilled 300 of them. We don't have time to look at them all, but let's look at just a few that he fulfilled. Micah 5 and Isaiah 9 taught that he was to be born in Bethlehem and taught in Galilee. In Genesis 49, it said he would be of the tribe of Judah, and Isaiah 9 said he would be a descendant of David. In Zechariah 12.10, we read that his side would be pierced, but in Psalm 34 that he would have no broken bones. This happened on the cross as the Roman soldiers came and, and they would break the legs of those crucified so that they would, they would die earlier. They, and, and when they get to Jesus, he, they saw that he was already dead, but to make sure they pierced his side. We also read in Isaiah 53 that he would die with the wicked. He was crucified with, with these thieves, but buried with the rich. And we say, see that he was buried in the rich man's tomb that had not been used. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, 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 thing, the interesting thing about the New Testament is that it records all of these fulfillments of Jesus' life. And then it records what he did with his followers, sending them out to teach. Jesus produced no written documents that we, that we know of himself. And I believe that was for a good reason. If Jesus had physically written something down, I believe that would have become an idol to the world uh, and, and had much more meaning than the words that he spoke. So instead, he commands his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And then he tells them that you will not have to do this alone. He gives them the spirit of truth in John 16, 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you, John 14, verse 26. I want us to remember those passages because they're going to come back uh, to play a big part as we consider some of the arguments that have been made about the Bible. But whenever those who, are, who received the spirit of truth, when they carried out this commission and they went and they taught and then they produced written teachings and they sent those teachings to the church and they sent those things to individuals or the general public, they were able to say, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 37, these are the words of the Lord. This is the commandments of the Lord. They were not their own writings. They were written with the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, and they were speaking the things which Jesus had, had also spoke uh, while he was on the earth. And there are many examples of the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament fulfilling this charge and acting under the direction of the Holy Spirit. There's also significant examples within the first four books of the Bible. We call those the Gospels. Those Gospels refer to the life of Jesus while he was on earth, and they refer to what is meant as the good news that Christ brought. They are written by the apostles Matthew and John, and they're written by the early disciples Mark and Luke. Mark, who walked with, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, who worked with Paul and Luke, who is a companion of Peter. Now, with respect to these, two, to these texts, to these four Gospels, many have asked, well, when were they written? When did we receive them? Because that is vitally important to understanding the authenticity of them. We need to understand that these were written by people who were eyewitnesses that saw the life of Jesus and were able to then say, this is what I saw, and, and which makes them much more credible than someone who says, well, my, my grandfather's grandfather told me they were able to say, no, we were there, and we witnessed, and we know what happened. So many have said, well, when were, were these things written? And as long as we're not talking about some time that is late into the second century or, or, or the third century, as long as we're not talking about something that's separated by hundreds of years, I believe there's a lot of judgment that can, be go, that can go into discerning when these things were written. But a general consensus says that Mark may have been written first around the mid-60s A.D., Followed by that were the books of Matthew and the books of Luke in, in the, in the mid-70s A.D. And following that, in the late 70s, the book of John. Now, some scholars suggest that Matthew may have been written before Mark. And they put Matthew being written as far back as maybe the 40s or the 50s. But what we are talking about, what we need to see in these dates, is that it's a very short period of time after Jesus walked and talked upon the earth that these men who were eyewitnesses recorded these events. They start to write down what happened as early as 10 years and at best as far away as 50 years after the fact. Let me give you an example of, some of, the, uh, of, of the, the impact that this played on some of the early writings of the men who lived around this time. In the year 180 A.D., a man named Irenaeus of Lyons wrote when he was describing how the Gospels were written. He said, Matthew, among the Hebrews, issued a writing of the Gospel in their own tongue. And while Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel at Rome and founding the church, and after their decease, Mark, the disciple, interpreter of Peter, also handed down to us writings what Peter had preached. And then Luke, the follower of Paul, wrote, recorded in a book the gospel as it was preached by him. And finally, John, the disciple of the Lord himself, published the gospel while he was residing at Ephesus in Asia. 
This was in, from his book Against Heresies. And, and Arrhenius, Arrhenius was not an inspired writer. Arrhenius had faults. And he began to reflect a lot of false teachings in his life. But something that we can see in his writings that is an evidence to us is that we're not talking about something written hundreds of years later. What we're talking about is that uh, by the late 2nd century, other people were already talking about the books that had been handed down. And they were already writing commentaries on the books that had been handed down. Notice what he also says, speaking of Jesus' first disciples. He says, they preached it abroad, and then later by the will of God, handed it down to us in writings to be the foundation and pillar of our faith. For after our Lord had risen from the dead, they were clothed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were filled with all things and had perfect knowledge. I want you to notice by this quote that Irenaeus, just, just like I believe, he asserted that these men didn't just, they didn't just come up with this on their own initiative. They wrote these things down and were guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now unfortunately... Men today say this isn't true. There is an example of this found in the Q hypothesis. This idea of the Q hypothesis comes from the German word quell, which means source. And, and those who hold to this hypothesis, they, they claim that there is some sort of hypothetical document, the Q document, and that document contained all the writings of Jesus, and it was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so where Matthew and, and Mark, they, or excuse me, Matthew and Luke, they largely borrowed from Mark, but where they differ, that's when they're borrowing from the Q source. And Luke, he followed the Q source much more faithfully than Matthew. And what I want us to, to consider about this, and, and know that maybe this is the first time you're hearing about this hypothesis, but this is, this is very, very common. You can find this in bookstores. You can find this in commentaries. You can find people who hold to this view. And we need to ask the question then, well, what is the truth? What is the truth about this? And in understanding that, we need to see that the fact that there is similar wording, which is what the argument rests upon, similar wording doesn't suggest a common written source. We've already read about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that Mark might sound like Matthew in some places and Luke might sound like Mark in some places, this can be explained by the fact that you have the Holy Spirit as a common source. Remember John 14 and verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13, Paul said, These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. And so a common uh, similarity of words does not indicate that they were all copying from, from some common source uh, that was written down before them. Secondly, just in terms of evidence alone, if there was some sort of source document, the enormous amount of early religious writings would somehow bear witness to that in some form or another. You have writings as early as 120 A.D., that are beginning to talk about the Gospels and about Matthew and Mark, Luke, and John. Some of these early religious writers like Papias, Irenaeus, or Origen. And then they wrote, now Papias only wrote about, uh, about Luke and John. But the others, they spoke about all four of the Gospels. And when they write in them, they speak extensively of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. But nowhere do they mention this hypothetical Q document. 
In fact, there is absolutely no evidence that this hypothesis is true. This theory simply seeks to discredit the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we move through this study, we also need to remember that we talked about the canon of the Old Testament when we talked about that formation. And the canon simply refers to the ruling or the measurement. It is what are the books that make up that body of literature. So similarly, we have the New Testament canon as well. And the Gospels aren't the only books that make up that body of work detailing the new covenant of Christ. There are 27 books that compromise the canon. The first five are books of history. Four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the life of Christ on earth. And then one of them, Acts, records the history of the early church. And it should probably be pointed out now that Luke and Acts are actually volume one and volume two of the same book. They were both written by, by, the apostle, or by, by Luke, and they were written volume one as a, as, a, as a history of Christ's life, and then volume two as a history of his church. The Holy Spirit also worked through men like the Apostle Paul, who wrote letters, uh, to, some to individuals uh, as the, as, and, and some to churches, as the ones listed here. Paul and John and others also wrote letters. And, and then we finally see, <clears throat> excuse me, we finally see that we have a book of prophecy, the book of Revelation, which revealed things which must shortly take place. <clears throat> It's within these 27 books that we have the complete New Testament canon, written after the time Jesus ascended into, into heaven, but also written before the close of the first century A.D. And there are some compelling things that show evidence of the inspiration of Scripture when we stop and consider how the early church used New Testament books. And we need to consider this because there is a false document, or excuse me, a false uh, teaching that, that oftentimes goes around, and it claims the New Testament was, was not written until centuries after Jesus walked. It was not written until, until long after these eyewitnesses had died, and so oftentimes that false teaching goes completely un... Uh, we, don't, we don't face that. We, we, don't, we don't put up a, an attempt to stop that. It goes unchallenged, and we need to make it our effort to make a stand whenever we hear that document being, or that, that teaching being taught. See, as Christians, we need to oppose that view because if the claim was true, then it puts the witnesses of those who saw these things so far separated that their account can no longer be held as justifiable. But the evidence of literature and the evidence of history completely flies in the face of those who hold this view. A few examples of that. The New Testament church and, and, and the, their use of the, of the New Testament recordings preserved the New Testament text. A man by the name of Bruce Metzger wrote this quote. He said, Indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources of our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. What he was saying was if somehow somebody was to gather up all of the Bibles in the world and to burn them, or they were to all be lost in some way, the writings in the first centuries alone of, of people who wrote about the New Testament, they wrote so extensively that we could just about reconstruct the entire New Testament from the things they wrote alone. Now what that tells us is that the things they were, the things they were writing about were there. They, were, they had access to them. They were able to read them and to consider them and study them. And so we understand that that New Testament church 
The early first century church, they preserved these writings in their great use of them. We also know that they used these writings in their early worship. Think of this from, the, from Justin Martyr who wrote in 150 A.D., He was talking about the Lord's Supper when he said the apostles in the memoirs composed by them, which are called gospels, thus handed down what was commanded them, that Jesus, taking bread and having given thanks, said, do this for my memorial, this is my body. So that early church had the gospels. They had what they needed to to be able to, to remember the words of Christ as he instituted the Lord's Supper. Later on in the same book, he describes worship on the Lord's Day when he says on that day, on the day that is called Sunday, there is a meeting in one place of those who live in cities or the country, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And we know what he's talking about when he says the memoirs of the apostles because he just explained those in the previous page. They are the gospels. They are what records Jesus' life. And so as early as the, as the mid-second century... This was a part of worship in the early church. And then we also would do well to see that this is also a great source of authority for the early church as well. Think about uh, this writing that comes from Clement of Rome in 96 AD. He's talking to the church at Corinth when he writes this shortly shortly after the the giving of the book of Revelation. He says, Take up the epistle of the blessed, uh, blessed Paul the Apostle. What he wrote to you in the beginning of the gospel, of a truth he charged you in spirit concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because that even then ye had made parties. Clement is talking about the book of 1 Corinthians. As early as 96 AD, he is writing a letter to Corinth reminding them to remember what Paul had said in that first letter to them. He would also have writings by a man named Ignatius of Antioch. He writes to Philadelphia saying, take refuge in the gospel as in Jesus' flesh and in the apostles as in the presbytery of the church and the prophets because they anticipated the gospel in their preaching and hoped for and awaited him. Now when he wrote these words at 100 AD, the apostles had all died. There were no apostles left. The, the, The oldest living apostle, John, died around 96 AD. And so when he talks about taking refuge in in the gospel and taking refuge in the apostles, he's talking about the things that they have written, the things that they have passed down. He had also, Ignatius, he had also begun, as many of these other men had done, to accept false truths, to believe things that, that were against the Bible and to fall into apostasy. Now, one of the apostasies that came very early on was this belief that that you could accept one man as a bishop over a church. And that eventually, uh, as they did that, they would have one man who would be the bishop, he would be the elder of the church, and then more churches began to fall into that, and then he became the elder over other churches, and eventually it leads to what we see in the Roman Catholic Church and and in other uh, denominations where you have one, one man over top of all these churches, especially highlighted in the view of the Pope. Uh, and, and so Ignatius writes in his letter to the Philadelphians, and he's talking about those who are criticizing him for his belief in this apostasy. But notice how he speaks about his critics. He says that they are telling him, if we don't find it in the original documents, we don't believe it is in the gospel. Now I think that's a very interesting statement that his critics were saying. 
Because the manuscripts of the New Testament books were already being circulated at that time. And so what that tells us is that people in 100 AD, people at the, at the turn of the century, were already saying the same things that we oftentimes say today. They were saying we need to be silent where the Bible is silent, and we need to speak where the Bible speaks. And they were telling Ignatius, if it's not in, the, if it's not in what was given to us, if it's not in the manuscripts, then we're not going to accept it. And they were speaking specifically on this idea of a single bishop over a church. Now, as we, as we move to bring this lesson to a close, there are some more things we need to consider about the, the formation of the, of the New Testament. And we need to understand that by viewing the writings that were given after the New Testament. Because occasionally you'll run into someone who will say, I feel like we should have more. Or what if, what if we don't have everything? What if there's something missing and we don't have it? And these books that they talk about are generally put into two categories. <coughs> Excuse me. Two categories. One is the, the Apostolic Fathers, and the other is the Gnostic Writings. <clears throat> now, one of these two categories, I'm going to go ahead and say that I, I do have more respect for than the others, and I think it's going to become pretty clear uh, as to which one that is. Let's look at the Apostolic Fathers first. That refers to any of the early religious writings after the period of the New Testament. Now, as we already pointed out, there were errors in these writings. In the Apostolic Fathers, they had errors. The church had already begun to fall into apostasy. But in general, they're holding to, and you will see reflected, what is recorded in the New Testament. In general, they're, they're, they're still holding to what we have recorded for us. Some of the manuscripts include this, like First and Second Clement, the epistle of Barnabas and Ignatius, the epistle of Polycarp, who was a, a disciple of John the Apostle, the teachings of the Twelve or the Shepherd of Hermas. And in these writings, or in other works, uh, some of these are included in manuscripts that you can find that, that have been found through history. They will have the manuscripts that we have of the, of the New Testament, and then they will have these included with them. But they are almost always included and marked as supplemental writings. And, and, and that, is where they have, uh, that is where they have profit. Because what they do offer is insight into church history. They offer us insight into what was going on in that early church. And, and they also are, are noted that they are not inspired. And these early writers didn't even view themselves as inspired. When you think about um, some of the writings that, that came out of this period, you, you would see writings like Tertullian of Carthage. And he talks about some of these. He's, he's being critical of one, the shepherd of Hermas. Uh, and, and Tertullian had his own problems. He was critical of the shepherd because the shepherd um, allowed for the forgiveness of adulterers. If you'd committed adultery, you could be forgiven. And we see that that is, that is true and found in the Bible. And Tertullian didn't believe that. If you committed adultery, there was, there was, that, that was an unforgivable sin. And he quoted, he's from his book on modesty, he writing about the shepherd, he said, it deserved to find a place in the divine canon if it had not been habitually judged by every council of churches, even of your own among apocryphal and false writings itself adulterous. He was talking about the fact that all, all of the churches of that day, they viewed this book as a book written without inspiration. It was written after the inspired writers had, had recorded their things, and it was false in its writings. Asubius of Caesarea talks about that and others, the Acts of Paul and the Apocalypse of Peter. He says, among the rejected writings must be reckoned also, uh, these books that have been mentioned, and in addition to these, the extant epistle of Barnabas and the so-called teachings of the apostles. 
<coughs> they rejected these books uh, and the teachings that they had, and many of them had teachings that reflected an apost- uh, apostate church. But that shouldn't be a surprise to us. We should know that was going to happen. Because Jesus warned about that. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul wrote, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The fact of apostasy, however, it doesn't change the truth of scriptures. Whether it be the, the apostasy of the apostolic church fathers or what will be seen in a much more hideous document in the form of the Gnostic writings. Now Gnosticism is a general term used and it covers a very broad number of beliefs, some of which we've talked about in our classes here recently. And these came around in the centuries after the New Testament. They made claims such as God not being the father of Jesus, but rather a God of warfare and a God of evil. They also made claims that Jesus never came in the flesh, but he only appeared to come in the flesh. And they treated heroes as villains and villains as heroes. One example of these documents is seen in Tatian's Diatessaron, where he took the four Gospels and he decided to make a harmony out of them, to make them one book and and, and put out where where all of them are harmonious, to, to kind of lump them together. But when he did so, he also left out the genealogies of Jesus making it very difficult to show that he is a fleshly ancestry. And they would use this, and they, they taught very extensively among Syriac churches. And so the Syriac churches started holding to this, and when people began to try and convert them, they couldn't even hardly convince them that there were four Gospels. They held to this Gnostic teaching so heavily. Another example is the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Thomas is certainly Gnostic and not at all reflective of what we see in sound scriptures. It records Jesus saying, Condemned be the flesh that depends upon the soul. Condemned be the soul that depends upon the flesh. Basically, it's quoting Jesus. And, and, and when I say quoting, he, he never said these words. But it, it's, it's saying that Jesus said that he couldn't come in the flesh. And then later on in the Gospel of Thomas, he would make comments about how women would not be able to go to heaven unless they became men. A thought that I certainly would imagine would, would cause great discomfort in women of that day as women of this day as well. Also, you have the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, who said, Jesus says there is no sin. It is you who makes sin exist when you act according to the habits of your corrupted nature. This is where sin lies. Basically, this is Gnosticism, saying that you cannot really do anything sinful. And then you have the Gospel of Judas. The Gospel of Judas treats Judas as if he was a hero. Jesus tells Judas in the Gospel of Judas that you will exceed all of them, speaking of of his disciples. You will exceed all of them, for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. Irenaeus went on to speak about this. He said they declare that Judas the traitor was thoroughly acquainted with these things, and that he alone, knowing the truth as no others did, accomplished the mystery of the betrayal. By him all things, both earthly and heavenly, were thus thrown into confusion. They produced a fictitious history of this kind, which they style the Gospel of Judas. These things just simply weren't so. And we know these as being false doctrines. We can see them very quickly to see that these are, are, they, they are con- contrasting and contradicting the things which the New Testament records. And it's in response to these that man decided we need, to, we need to get together and we need to, we need to stand up to them and we need to fight them. 
And so they did so by producing canon lists and ecumenical ecumenical councils. Um, One thing that we need to know, that these these councils and these canons uh, that were created in response to these false doctrines, God never made a council to decide what was right or what was wrong. And he never authorized a published declaration to declare what was true and what was false in regards to the words that we had in the first century. But some of these occurred throughout history in response to the false doctrines that we've just looked at. And some of them didn't try to assert any authority either. Some of them very honestly just said, look, this is what is true right here. And these Gnostic teachings and these apostolic te- uh, father teachings, those, while they may have, some may have good purposes, they are not what is, what is true. They are not what is inspired. But there are other councils and there are other lists that reflect the arrogance of man. And they tried to raise themselves up to a level of authority that just simply was not their own. Either way, whichever one we're looking at, we need to make sure that we don't make the mistake of imagining that these councils or these canon lists were debating and choosing what is Scripture and what isn't Scripture. That is absolutely false. God reveals Scripture. God preserves Scripture and God sustains His Word. A canon list is simply a reflection of personal or or even collective beliefs at a given time. Some of them showed sound discernment. Some of of them did not. But I do think it's important for, uh, for us to ask the question, what determines what is canonical? What determines what is Scripture? We've said already that it is divine providence. God is the one who determines what is Scripture. Whenever we ask what is canonical and we consider the providence of God, we need to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. When he said, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In 1 Peter 1, Peter said, All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That is what determines what is canonical. God's providence. He is the one that that instituted scripture, Scripture, and He is the one that has preserved it and sustained it. So maybe another question we should ask then is, what determined what was viewed as canonical? What determined what that first century church viewed as canonical? uh, canonical? One of the things was the acceptance by that church. If it was widely accepted, it was something that that would have played a big factor in, in that view. But especially would have been the content of those words. Uh, For example, the epistle of Barnabas. The epistle of Barnabas asserts that the legend of the phoenix, maybe you've heard of this, the bird that that gets burned up and and then becomes uh, new again. This mythical story of a bird that can live for thousands of years and then in its death it catches on fire and from the ashes a chick is born that will repeat the process. That story dates back all the way to the ancient Egyptians. And so when you're asserting an ancient myth as truth, well, we can be certain that's, that's not the inspired Word of God. It's also sometimes said that the canon of Scripture was, was set during the Council of Nicaea. You'll hear um, many churches that hold to this view today. Many denominations hold to this view today. The Council of Nicaea set what was in Scripture. And again, this is, this is totally false. I say that because we have an extensive record of what went on at the Council of Nicaea. And we know that from those records that they were debating the nature of Christ and they were trying to oppose Gnosticism, the things that these Gnostic teachings were were popping up here and there. And and they were trying to say, no, those things are false. 
This is a council that met in the year 325 AD. And it met at the request of Constantine, the first emperor of Rome that believed in Jesus. And, and in that, there is very little indication that they discussed at all the New Testament canon, unless, in fact, to say that these things, that are, these things are things that, are, that we know are in the Bible, and these things over here are things that have come uh, after the fact. Councils or declarations do not determine excuse me, do not determine what is divine, inspired, or authoritative. At very best, they state what is already understood to be true. And this again can be seen in some of the writings of these early men. The Synod of Laodicea wrote in the mid-300s about the New Testament. They said the New Testament, these are the books, four gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts of the Apostles, Seven Catholic epistles, which simply means seven general epistles. One of James, two of Peter, three of John, one of Jude, 14 epistles of Paul, one to Rome, two to Corinthians, one to the Galatians, one to the Ephesians, one to the Philippians, one to the Colossians, two to the Thessalonians, one to the Hebrews, two to Timothy, one to Titus, and one to Philemon. Again, not stating and not making, they are not setting what is in the scripture, but talking about what they already know to be in the scripture. The letter of Athanasius, he wrote, of the New Testament. These are the four Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Afterwards, the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles, called Catholic. Seven of James, one of Peter, two of John. Three of these, one of Jude. In addition, there are 14 Epistles of Paul written in this order. The first to the Romans, then two to the Corinthians, after these to the Galatians, next to the Ephesians, then to the Philippians, then to the Colossians. After these, two to the Thessalonians, and that to the Hebrews, and again, two to Timothy, one to Titus, and lastly, that of Philemon, besides the revelation of John. Again, these writings, they do not determine what is divine. They simply state what they knew to be truth at that point already. The fact that the New Testament, the fact that the Gospels, the Epistles, the prophecy, or, or as we might say from Matthew to Revelation, the fact that it is complete and viewed as the inspired Word of God is seen by the end of the first century. And we can be assured that the New Testament we read in our English Bibles, the New Testament that we study and that we proclaim today, we can be assured that it is the complete and the accurate and the wholly inspired Word of God. I hope these thoughts have been beneficial to you. I know that, that some of these things take longer to address than others, and I appreciate your time, and I appreciate your patience in this, and I hope that they were of value to you, because some of these more important issues, uh, sometimes they take more time for us to consider. Now tonight, if there are those here who have not been obedient to the gospel that we, that we can put so much faith and trust in, all things are prepared, and we stand ready to assist you in that. If you are a child of God and would seek to be restored to the Lord or seek the prayers of the saints that meet here on your behalf, I would like to let you know that we would be, be more than happy and desire to assist you in any way if you would just let it be known right now as we stand and sing.